Hello and welcome to episode 37 of what we're listening to. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of your hosts. And uh, with me, as always, is my good friend, Angelical Cat Asher. How are you, sir? Angelical Cat, did you say? Uh, Angelical Cat. You have not seen cats, oh. then I'm assuming. <laughs> right, gotcha. I haven't actually seen it. I've only ever, like, I've got the book, which I've read a tiny bit of, but yeah, I never really bothered with watching cats. Sorry. Um, should point out that uh, at the end of last episode, we spun the wheel to decide what genre we were going to do this episode for our homework. And uh, we didn't actually say in that episode. No, um, because I had added just about every subgenre of every genre there was <laughs> to this big spinner. So we got some pretty niche genres there. So we decided yeah. to go with something a bit simpler. Yeah, yeah. And that was, um, that was musicals. Mus- <laughs> musicals, hence the Jellicle Care reference. Um, so we're going to talk about musicals later on. But before we get to that, um, I have a small quiz for you, sir. Mm-hmm. And this can either be very easy or very difficult. I'm not quite sure. Um, sure. So I've been, um, I've been watching interviews with the drummer from The Roots. It's a guy called Questlove. And he's a big... Um, He's just a huge nerd when it comes to hip hop and like soul history. And oh, this is the tiny desk you sent me, right? With the uh, like seven piece brass band kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the, the drummer for that band mm-hmm. is massive brain. And I was watching an interview with him um, where he's talking about how the limitations of technology affected hip hop in like stages of like five years. And mm-hmm. one of the big things that was a problem was the eight track tape. Um, yeah. So the eight track tape uh, has a specific length for each side, and so it was notorious for cutting up and jumbling album orders to make them right. fit on an eight track tape in different orders. Um, but there was one artist who tried very hard to make sure that his albums fit both on the eight track tapes and vinyl records. Wow. Um, can you tell me who that artist was? Very famous in the 70s. Um, I mean, is it David Bowie? <laughs> it's not David Bowie. We have okay. talked about one of his records. Yeah. Um, oh, the 70s. Um, is it Stevie Wonder? It is Stevie Wonder. Okay. It is Songs in the Key in Life specifically is uh, length for an 8-track and a vinyl record. How long is one side of an eight track? I'm not actually sure. <laughs> okay. Because like, I mean, like a cassette, right? You can make it longer or shorter if you like. It's usually around yeah. 30 minutes to 40 minutes per side. From No, no, 20 to 30 minutes per side kind of thing. Um, I didn't know that eight tracks were that long. I don't, yeah, I yeah, never yeah. really listened to one, obviously. They're these like humongous cartridges. Yeah, I've only ever really listened to one in like a 70s car before. They're really mm. strange. Um, yeah. But apparently, apparently they're notorious for um, album order being mixed up on them on purpose. Right, yeah. And well, anyway, points to Stevie that, Wonder, sir. Well, you gave me the hint. You said 70s yeah. artists that we've reviewed before, and that's not <laughs> too many. So I don't know if you can give me a full point for that one, but thank you. That's all um, right. Just on that, before we move on, um, when I a while ago when I was like reading David Burns, um, how music works, he talks a lot about how like technology has limited, but also kind of enhanced creativity, and that whole notion of our understanding of how long a song is and how long an album are are really shaped by the technology that was available at the time, and I just think that's always an interesting thing that we still retain that like two and a half minutes to three minutes is like the appropriate length for a single or something like that. Yeah. Um, when these con- these are just constructs that have come from the length of singles and, and all that sort of thing. And, and how interesting it is that people would even change the track order to fit technology rather than like just go <laughs> with the original vision is interesting to yeah. me. Like, That's like true. Sufjan's, Sufjan's Carrie and Lowell, I bought it on vinyl and I was listening to it. And suddenly I was like, what the heck? We have skipped a song. And there's a song swap on that to make it fit the vinyl too. 
and it really messes up my understanding of that album, mm. like in the flow of things. And so anyway, I mean, like I've dealt with this before putting albums on tape and thinking about that. And actually sometimes I've written an album thinking about two halves and thinking about the equal lengths of them as well. So like it's inevitable that technology shapes our creative process. And I'd (laughs) say that limitations are ways to enhance creativity as well. But it's just interesting that we, um, David Byrne also talks about like the concert halls we write for and like Mm. now the concert hall is the one between our ears like in our headphones and so the way we write music really tries to suit the particular performance spaces at our given time anyway yeah no i think that makes sense i was reading a um an interview with a a punk musician that i like to follow sometimes and she was talking about how because um of the pandemic and COVID and um, vinyl becoming more popular, there's like a, what's the word? There's like a plug happening in the production line. Um, Mm, Yeah. I heard about this. Yeah. So if you like wanted to get your new vinyl record made by like 2023, you have to like submit it now kind of thing. Like it's a, there's a massive bottleneck happening because all these like Adele is like printing 500,000 copies of her new album kind of thing. And those yeah. big names are getting on the bandwagon. Yeah. Even tapes are getting backlogged. Like, because um, a friend of mine who um, runs Flag Day Recordings, he's had troubles with like backlogs of tape because of duplication.ca in, in Canada being shut mm. down for a while and then starting up again and just... Um, them just trying to be safe and take care of their workers, like understandably. It's, yeah, it's been a real tricky thing with physical records. And so I think a lot of people either have been just delaying that or not doing that at all. So, yeah. yeah. I know that Bandcamp was starting up their own vinyl pressing sort of thing, but that seems to have stopped maybe in light of the pandemic. I don't know. Yeah. It's a, it's a shame. Anyway. Yeah, they. Um, yeah, it would be really good to offer that to more people. That kind of fundraising of vinyl, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you have any catch up, sir? Yeah, I do have a little bit. Um, oh. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so no. <laughs> I listened through the playlist and re-enjoyed the elbow track, um, the seldom seen kid. Um, it really. Uh, my friend Maddie G was saying that it feels like a lyrical return to some older songs. Um, but I really like the clarinets and the kind of, um, just the arrangement of the piece. It's, they always do something that surprises me. So I enjoyed mm. that. Um, mm. and I listened to black country new road again and idols and I'm yeah, quite excited about the, both of those. I'm, I'm very interested to see how <laughs> they go. So yeah, I didn't actually get to your honorable mentions in the playlist. Sorry. I, but I was no, re-listening fine. to some of the ones that I was, um, I'd heard before. Um, yeah, we'll we'll talk about the idols a little bit later because they released another song, which is uh, a bit out there. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out whether to put something here in the follow up or put it in the honorable mentions because yeah. I almost you you know I almost reviewed a Grimes record this this uh, episode. I might just talk about it here quickly because I it relates to what I did as honorable mentions last week. Um, sure. I kind of was following on from talking about Grimes last time and going, I've been confused about her. Like she's very popular and I'm not really sure why is she popular and what she's done and that sort of thing. I need to understand the context. Not in that sense. I'm not trying to be mean. Like I'm I just still taking it that way. Sure. You can take it that way. We'll tag her. She can take it however she likes. Um <laughs> I listened to a bunch of albums. Like I listened to Gee Prime first because I'm a bit of a fan of Dune and kind of discovered she's a bit of a sci-fi nerd and likes that kind of thing. So I listened to that. It was quite experimental. Like a lot of her earlier work is really all over the shop in terms of um, instrumentation and recording quality and that sort of thing. She was kind of teaching herself how to record. The thing that I found really interesting is like how she went from kind of like really bohemian sort of electronic artist to kind of pop like very very 
popular artist right now. I'm not, I'm still trying to figure out what happened there. And there was a few mm. like mini documentaries on YouTube that I've been looking through um, and just trying to understand her progression as an artist. The thing overall I really liked, like I said last time, is she's a great producer. Like I, one of the albums that stuck with me was probably her Art Angels album. Um, but I didn't want to review it because I couldn't quite get through all of it. Like I listened to a few tracks. So I was like, oh, yeah, I dig these, but just didn't really get the whole body of work. And so anyway, I just liked her production. I think she's done a really good job of um, kind of teaching herself these instruments and then producing them really well. Um, I think, though, it's still just like a taste thing that I don't really love her voice too much. It's a bit like bubbly sometimes, and she's kind of embracing the pop sphere on Art Angels. Um, there's some catchy songs on there. It's well done. Like, you know, Kill V Mame is pretty great. Um, and these songs are like really killer in terms of catchiness and stuff. Um, but I just, yeah, just couldn't quite get into it. So anyway, I didn't do it as a full review, but I just thought I'd mention that and chuck off a couple of songs on the playlist for people to check out. I feel like I'm probably the only person on the planet who doesn't really understand why Grimes is famous the way she is. Um, but I was just trying to do my own little research and just figure things out too. So anyway, just <laughs> also, you probably didn't need to hear another synth pop artist as a review. So there we go. No, I, yeah, <laughs> not, not my particular bag. No, that's fine. Yeah. I just, I don't, I like tre- stretching my listening sometimes and, and trying something different, but it just didn't stick. But um, yeah, anyway, there we go. I, I wasn't done, as I said I was last time. I may be done now, but look, let's never say any ultimatums, Asha, because you always <laughs> go back on them. <laughs> Did you have any follow-up as well? Um, I really didn't, actually. I, I couldn't think of any. Um, That's cool. So I, I'm all good, which means it's review time, right? Sweet. Let's do it. All right, so I've been listening to a band I probably should um, have gotten into earlier, as you said. Um, Mm. This is a Silver Mount Zion, which is made up of quite a few members of Godspeed You Black Emperor. Um, So they're a Canadian um, band, and the lineup seems to change quite a bit. Um, But I guess the central feature is Ephraim Manuel Manuk, who is the... Um, one of the main guitarists in Godspeed You Black Emperor. And I've been listening to their album Born Into Trouble As The Sparks Fly Upward, which is obviously a quote from Job, correct, I think? Um, Yes. So I was just doubting myself there for a moment. Um, (laughs) Now, I've listened to a few of Silver Mount Zion albums before, but have always felt like I want to like them more than I do. Um, the thing is, I really want more Godspeed You Black Emperor. Um, <laughs> and so I was I was listening to these albums, trying to find the one with the least vocals on it. Because um, I've, I've always found Ephraim's vocals a bit too strangled and a bit too, um, yeah, not to my taste. Another mm. one like Grimes, just, just not my taste. Um, and I settled on this album when I was listening because it has some of the most gorgeous string parts I've heard in a while. Um, there's a lot of string players on this particular album and they do a great job of combining like kind of, you know, tape loops and effects and these beautiful acoustic woody sounding strings. And then, you know, Ephraim's tremolo sort of electric guitar sort of feel, which is such an interesting mix for me. Like I, I kind of put tremolo in the bag of like more like alt rock sometimes, but it really works in this context of post-rock. So, um, yeah, I, the, the, the overall, I don't have like individual things to say about this and I feel like my review is <laughs> going to be quite short. It just overall, like some parts reminded me of like Sigaros in terms of the, the use of strings. Mm. Um, I think this, that Silver Mount Zion is going to grow on me because I've been trying in different ways to get into them. Um, and always felt like I've not quite found the right album for me. And I feel like this is the one that will grow on me a lot. I did like the way vocals were used on the last track. They're like musicians are cowards and that sort of thing. It's like very um, repetitive and kind of 
the chorus and all this sort of thing. And his, his, uh, as a friend says, his strangled sort of vocal sound is, is suitable for lament, which is kind of what a Silver Mount Zion is like. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this, this album came out around the time that Godspeed You Emperor, Black Emperor broke up. So some of their albums are like in the interim period, uh, period of um, that band's discography. So anyway, did you have a listen at all to this one? Uh, yeah, yeah, I did. Um, it's still like a very uh, <clears throat> dirgy um, kind of dark sound, um, but I mm. think I enjoyed it. I don't know. I find it much more um, palatable being the songs are like four minutes, five minutes, maybe a, maybe a 10 minute or like I can... Um, yeah. I can get to the point of what the song's trying to do a little bit quicker, um, which I enjoy. Yeah, I don't know. I think I enjoyed um, the singing by and large, um, okay. especially the la- the last song as you pointed out. It did remind me of um, another band called The Antlers, which is um, similarly very strained. Uh, like the the vocals aren't pretty, and I think it's on purpose, obviously. But it's yeah, to like yeah. to it's part of the instrumentation as this guy is just kind of going forward amongst all this stuff that's happening around him. No, I found the, the use of children a little bit strange. Um, Oh yeah. That weird, um, hurrah, hurrah kind of thing. I was like, okay. Yeah. And there's multiple verses that are like read by a child. I don't know if it's like his kid or something like that. Um, I mean, I try not to dig too much into the mind of the, anarchic anarchist ways of godspeed use members but yeah there's yeah. there's some interesting things going on there yeah um yeah i don't know i think i enjoyed it uh hmm. i probably should give it a couple more listens before i form a strong opinion on it but it was interesting yeah i feel the same a little bit like i because it's quite long and quite expansive you really got to commit to it and, yeah. um, yeah, I felt like my listening was a little bit all over the shop, but I did really enjoy this. It matched the kind of like rainy, gloomy weather we've been having lately. Intermittent yeah. with, you know, mixing up with, uh, beautiful sun and su- sunshine, but I know it's been a bit gloomy where you are. So it was very dark, the album. Um, so I was like, okay, this is what we're going for, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I just. That that's all. Don't really have too much more to say. But I was <laughs> I do want to actually credit my friend Will. Um, he got me onto. He actually sent me a track by Silverman Zion a long time ago um, for one of their albums called "This Is Our Punk Rock," I think. Mm. And that was really interesting because at the start they use like solfage, solfage, which is like singing the the steps of the scale, you know, like do, mi, mi, so, fa, la, so, etc. It's an yeah. old way of singing. It's like um, it was done in the States uh, with hand signals and that sort of thing to represent the different notes of the scale. And I liked that use of that interesting, you know, solfage singing in this context of like rock music. So anyway, <laughs> that drew me into them. Yeah. Fair I'll put enough. that track on the album too. <laughs> Anyway, what have you, what have you been listening to? Uh, yeah, um, so I have been uh, diving into the music of uh, Welsh seven piece uh, alternative emo band uh, Los Campesinos. Um, There's a lot of labels going on there. A lot of labels. So they released an EP on Bandcamp that I stumbled across um, earlier this year, and it was a hodgepodge of singles that they've never released on different albums from across their career. And, Mm. um, I really, really enjoyed that. Like I've been going over, it's a five song EP and I listened to it like a whole bunch of times. So I thought, okay, I'll I'll actually have a dig. And so I like went through one of the most critically acclaimed albums and just kind of picked one. Um, Mm. so I've been listening to their fifth album, um, called no blues. Uh, it's the first record without their original bass player, apparently, uh, but there's still hmm. a massive seven piece. Um, and so I've kind of been going through that. Yeah. Um, without expecting much, I've been really enjoying 
this branch of music and record, I think. Um, it has like the perfect amount of uh, rhythm behind it to keep my unga bunga brain engaged constantly and to start like paying attention to the lyrics, the like plethora of European football references for like broken relationships that make up a lot of the lyricism of this album. Um, wow. Yeah, it's all over the place. <clears throat> so uh, I don't know much about the band other than like they're kind of huge, um, but I really enjoy their approach to uh, vocal usage, at least on this album so far. Um, they do a lot of like gang group vocals where mm. they break up uh, people's sounds and use them as like background rhythms and background melodies without actually being words. Um, That's cool. Yeah. It's really clever. Um, and I don't know, like as far as a fifth album goes, this isn't lazy. Like they got, this is a, a lot of um, creative energy behind this album. That seems like they got something to prove, I guess it's really, um, it really pushes forward, which I really appreciate. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, it's it's. I don't know. I just been really. It hits a lot of those like alternative rock buttons that I really appreciate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. It feels like a gang of youths to me, but with very <laughs> different vocals. Like that yeah, same yeah, yeah. movement of the drums and kind of pushing, pushing, pushing. Like, um, yeah. I just got that distinct feel. I really like the synth stuff in it as well. Like that combo. Um, of the rock and synth and like this song called cemetery gates. I really quite yeah. liked. Are there a lot of puns in their titles? Am I getting that? There's a, there's a lot of wordplay and yeah. Yeah. The, cause the singer isn't, you know, you say gang youths, the singer is nowhere as slick as the, as David is like his, um, his voice isn't overly pretty in terms of like, the classical sense, but he makes up for it with a lot of clever witticisms in what he writes about, I think. Um, yeah, so track three is a portrait of the Trequatatista as a young man, which is yeah. a play on the a portrait of an artist as a young man, which is the... Oh, I should know who wrote that, but I've forgotten momentarily. I don't even know what that word is in the title. <laughs> I think it's a soccer position or it's a soccer player. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, Avocado, baby. Yeah. So I, um, this has kind of been, this band is known to have a bit of a cult following. Like they're not super mainstream, um, mm. but the people who like have discovered them really, really enjoy them. And I think that's going to be me. Like I, <laughs> uh, if I'd known about them earlier, there's no doubt that I would have been a big fan. So this is the first album of mine that I've delved into. And I have a couple mm. more that I will go into probably someday. Um, but in the meantime, um, no blues, I think has been a real hit and I've really enjoyed, uh, the way it works. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it too. I remember you talking about these guys last year or something. Um, cause I remember the name, but yeah, it's good. That's it's cool that there's, yeah, it's cool that there's so much great music coming out of the UK at the moment. I just am constantly stunned. <laughs> anyway, lost Campesinos. Um, get into it. So homework time. Homework time. So, so by some funny chance, um, when we kind of decided we were doing musicals. Uh, Josh and I both had a musical in mind to give each other <laughs> and both of them were by the same artist. <laughs> and so that person is Mike Bat. Did you want to do a bio on Mike Bat? Oh, Mike Bat or did you want to, do you want me to explain a bit? <laughs> uh, you can talk about Mike Bat. I have a bunch of notes on musicals in general because I've been doing a bit of a historical dig into them because I think okay. the, the, the things that we have given each other are fairly contextual and I've been doing like, how do these fit into the history of musicals a little bit? So we can talk about that afterwards. Yeah. You tell me about Mike Bat first. Yeah. This is what I think we should do. I'll just give a brief intro of Mike Bat. We'll talk about <laughs> my homework 
that you gave me, then we'll talk about the homework I gave you and then you can talk about the history of musicals. How's that sound? Sure, we can do that. <laughs> so Mike Batt is um, now, oh man, English musician, right? Got it? Yes, yes, um, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so I, for a moment I was just blank. But um, he was very famous for being in what I understand to be like a kid's show called The Wombles. Oh. It was a kid's show, right? Um, this is how um, other people have talked about him. All I knew of Mike Batt was that he was quite a, quite a like good orchestral composer with mm. also a great singing voice. And he wrote these pop songs that were also very um, avant-garde orchestrally. And so he's written albums, he's written musicals, and he's written also kids' songs and kids' show stuff. And so we picked two kind of, I suppose they're called <laughs> musicals, um, they're almost oratorios, um, yeah. you know, in that there's not a lot of like a cast, especially for what you gave me. Um, but yeah, I don't, I haven't delved deep into Mike Bat. I've more delved deep into the album I gave you. But mm. um, yeah, so you could, I'll put some, I'll put like a link to his bio in the show notes. You can read more about him because I don't know a lot about his like, Wombles career and other stuff like that. So if you're interested, check that out. Did you want to tell people what you gave me? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, one of the first CDs that I ever listened to as a child was uh, this musical um, that my parents went to go see before I was born in in Sydney, um, which is a a show called The Hunting of the Snark, um, or The Snark, if you are going to be British about it. so it's a musical by Mike Bat, um, based on the nonsense poem by Lewis Carroll. Um, mm-hmm. So I have a love for nonsense poetry. I have a, a, a couple decades old collection of uh, Lear and Carroll, which is kind of these you know, nonsense rhymes and limericks and that kind of stuff. And the snark is in there. Um, and I, I think originally I was pulled to this, uh, musical because of the uh, cast members um, mm-hmm. it's a it's a bit of a rock opera in some parts and you mm, have yeah. these musicians who are involved in that which to my like teenage brain was amazing like George Harrison Art mm. Garfunkel Roger Daltrey from The Who Denise Lewis you know um, John Mike Hurt Bat evidently had good pool power <laughs> Yeah, like you look at the list of these people, and you're like, these people have never collaborated on anything together outside of this, and it's quite amazing. Um, hmm. So uh, this musical is kind of um, you take verses from the poem, and you have the narrator read them, which is John Hurt in most of the circumstances, and hmm. then Mike Bat has written songs that revolve around the passage that has been read. Um, and so it's a clever interplay of what's actually going on in the poem. And then some things which don't actually, I don't think relate that much to what actually happens, um, but are still kind of fun musically that go next to it. Um, hmm. So it's an interesting adaption, I think. Anyway. Uh, so the hunting of the snark. Asher, what did you think? Yeah. So just on that note about lyrics, I think in the same way that I talked about Sofiana Angelo's album that bounces off movies, I think that Mike Bat bounces off the content of The Hunting of the Snark yes. to kind of create a sensical storyline because this story does actually make sense. And I really enjoyed listening to this. So I had heard it before because my wife also loved this album as a kid. Um, her parents played it to her. Even though my parents were big Mike Bat fans as well, this was not one of the ones on repeat for them. Um, what was on repeat was what I gave you, which we'll talk about <laughs> later. Um, however, I really loved this album. Like, I really enjoyed the songs. I really, I watched the um, the 1984 performance at the Royal Albert Hall, um, yeah. which pulls in another famous um, musician, Julian Lennon. Um, mm. which was, he did a great job. And if you listen, it's just amazing listening to him and thinking about his father and the way mm. they produce his voice is very, very similar. So it's quite cool. That close reverb is really great. Um, so 
it is a nonsense poem, but it has a strangely emotive storyline in this. Like it's very sweet with all the characters and the things that they go through and the way he's managed to pull out of it. Even though the the concepts themselves are a bit silly, he's managed to pull meaning out of it. Friendship and love and, you know, um, sadness and all this sort of thing. He's like pulled out of this poem um, and arranged it really well. I, it helps. I also love Mike Bat's voice. I really think he's got a great way of producing his vocals. Um, it's multi-tracked and like lots of verb or close verb and stuff. And so it's a very, very particular sound. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I've written down at first that I didn't follow the story, but I think I've got a better picture of it now in my brain <laughs> than I did at the start. Like I've listened to it a few times and I've watched the show and so I've seen kind of the character interactions and that sort of thing. It makes a lot more sense now. But for me, songs like Children of the Sky, like I've had in my head for ages. It's a beautiful yeah. one. I like I like that, that odd bar length in the middle there and it just feels really good. As long as the moon can shine and vanish away. Um, I was discussing this with my wife last night. I can't really stand the the upbeat songs like Snooker Song and The Dancing Towards <laughs> Disaster. They're so silly and they just drive me a little batty. Like I go, oh dear, like we've really fallen into the musical territory that I don't like, <laughs> which is where you kind of have pseudo jazz with um, within a musical. It just kind of feels a bit silly, but yeah. anyway. Mike I, Bat's clarinets are always wacky, and I loved his use of clarinets on this. Sorry, you were going to say something? No, no I think that's a fair assessment of snickering you to know. <laughs> it's just even the Royal Albert Hall performance too is is also like a bit subpar. I don't know. It just feels a little bit stilted to me. But yeah. <laughs> It made me laugh watching the performance and, like, the guy comes out doing this massive guitar solo, like, on this hollow body, you know, almost <laughs> jazz sort of guitar. Just, And obviously that was George Harrison's parts on the recording. Yeah. 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 No, I, like, I really enjoyed this. Um, I'm just trying to think of anything else. No. Do you want to tell me what you really like about The Hunting of the Snark? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's interesting because there's a difference between the recorded like CD version and then the live version. Um, oh, yeah. I think it, it's a bit of a loss. And I missed we, Art Garfunkel's yeah. voice. Oh, man. It's, you just it's can't a bit unfair. compromise. It's yeah. a bit unfair because his, as in terms of like pure vocal quality, Art Garfunkel is one of the greatest. And so you have some of these songs that definitely miss him um, in the live mm. version. Um yeah, but I think as I got older, I enjoyed more and more um, Roger Daltrey's performance. He's the he's the judge um, and the oh, lead singer of the Who. Um, the pig must pay that one. Yeah, and he gives it quite yeah. a good job actually. I think as like a guy who normally does you know rock and roll songs, actually he's like a pretty good um, stand up job for a musical singer. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, I I must confess that was one person I didn't I didn't know the name directly of. No, that's but, fine. Yeah. I'll have to give you a Who album one of these days. The yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, I, it's interesting. I I also probably talk about this in zero zero a little bit, but I noticed some similar um, orchestration techniques um, mm. that that Mister Bat likes to use, I guess. Though, boom, yeah, boom, boom, like all these wacky yeah, stuff, and stuff. stuff like that. But I think he actually does a better job with them in the Hunting of the Stark, or they're like a more full concept that he manages to use. Oh, um, I fully agree. I think that after listening to these kind of side by side, I think Hunting is much better. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. This kind of, I guess, I, I like oddball things, and this. It definitely sticks in my head in terms of a musical that's different. Um, but the tunes and the songs are memorable. And mm. I can sing most of them by heart still um, yeah. without actually listening to it that many times. Mm. Um, all right. You want to talk about Zero Zero, Asher? Yeah. So I... <laughs> uh, so 
while Josh was a young lad listening to Hunting of the Snark, I was a young lad listening to Mike Matt's Zero Zero, which um, which is another, in some ways, it's quite similar in, like, his writing style is similar. If you just take the songs of Zero Zero and the songs of Hunting of the Snark, you can tell they're written by the same guy, in my opinion. Like, Zero Zero is probably a bit more 80s in feel. <laughs> a bit more? Anyway. I'll just give you a tiny bit of background to this. So this is a pretty wild musical. He actually wrote it while sailing on a yacht to Australia. So the ABC had commissioned him a piece for the 50th anniversary of the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, not the American Broadcasting Corporation, confusingly. Um, And so he wrote this musical and had a pretty, like, succinct score and, like, drawings and all this sort of thing ready for when he arrived um but then there were a whole bunch of issues in production of producing this in australia and it got cancelled a bunch of times and they were like losing money so they compromised uh and this is the crazy part they compromised they wanted more australian people in it uh or they wanted it to be kind of like boosting the australian economy as well as england and that sort of thing so they recorded it twice um, one version has a dancer as the lead and one version has Mike Batch as the lead. And the condition was that neither version was to be played in the other person's country kind of thing. <laughs> so when I was a kid, obviously the Australian one was broadcast and we had it uh, on VHS. And then when I was trying to look this up, I couldn't find that version anywhere because obviously Mike Batch is prom- promoting the one that he's in. Um so anyway, this this uh, I I might talk about this a little bit more afterwards because that's maybe um, not so much to do with the music as it is. Yeah, <laughs> but this musical is not a nonsense poem, but it's by far a weirder kind of futuristic um, yes. musical. It's set in the future after the Seventh World War, when love as a disease has been abolished. Um, <laughs> But uh, then there runs into a, there's a problem with a, a man named Number Seventeen. So, did you want to tell me a little bit of what you thought about yes. Zero Zero by Mike Bat? <laughs> um, this somehow makes less sense than Hunting of the Snark as a uh, holistic <laughs> project. Um, yeah, I got uh, it. Reminded me of an occasion when I was a teenager. <clears throat> And a good friend of my brother's brought over a uh, a video of a movie called The Fantastic Planet, which is an animated film from mm. France in the 1970s. And um, I remember sitting there watching it with them thinking, I don't understand anything that's happening as to why it's happening. I get the idea, but I don't like any of this. <laughs> I just kind of like sitting there watching it. And I think I get a similar idea from zero zero of like, I'm either too sober or not sober <laughs> enough this whole time. Um, so you, you mentioned like the, the stipulations from the ABC to have like more cast members be Australian, for example. Or, um, or what I think it was just that they needed it to be like a, uh, like a more of an Australian product. I think the rest of the cast were the same, which is weird. It's just yeah, the leads that's different. There's basically <laughs> anyway. no way to distinguish anyone in the in the performance. And that's kind of the whole point. Like you're in this futuristic dystopian, you know, check mark. Everything's black and white. Um, yeah. Everyone's got a number on their face and they all look the same. So I don't know mm. why you would have to stipulate all this like nonsense about different actors, but... Um, I'll put the link in the show notes. It's a funny read, but yeah. Yeah. So basically, you have this main character, number 17, who's also called Ralph for some reason um, in in that song. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great song, actually. Uh, (laughs) um, But you can call me Ralph. He reads a book about love and starts, like, feeling it for um, another, uh, another woman in the colony that they live in system 605 yeah um and then he gets taken to zero zero which is like a a a brain reassessment um facility where they basically give him a lobotomy and he doesn't feel love anymore 
and then the thing ends with like actually the woman has been infected now as well but she's like alone and yeah. um i don't know it's almost the exact same plot as 1984 um oh yeah where he it, yeah winston gets brainwashed it's, it's very very close we're like the idea of like you're in this um dystopian future where love is banned and but it's still something that like threatens the system um and so like they try all the stuff to get rid of it and in the the end the main characters get lobotomized and they stop loving each other and you're like okay um Hmm. uh yeah so it's uh visually very striking and surrealist it's uh very strange to look at for long periods of time avant-garde sort of avant-garde play um, there's probably only about like five actual songs. Yeah, I was re-listening to it, realizing I, I skipped through a bit of the instrumentals in the middle yes. because it's easier to watch it and understand <laughs> it than it is to listen. To there's understand um, it. <laughs> long periods of instrumentals between songs where there's like interpretive dance, um, and I, yeah, it's a weird combination of like the metaphor, the main metaphor of the musical being so obvious of like, you know, love is important, but also trying to like obscure it as much as possible. And it's a weird combination. I wonder what Mike Bat was trying to do in this. (laughs) Like how deep was he trying to go? I mean, he wrote it on a yacht traveling, like, you know, it, I don't know if he was trying to say something hugely profound about something else or he was just trying to write a world in and of itself. Because you listen to the songs like Love Makes You Crazy and that could be a pop song. Yeah. Or it could be it's half and half related to the world that he's written and half related to the world that we live in. I don't know. What do you think? I, yeah. I, <laughs> sorry. I can't handle this. So this is written okay. in like 1982. And so I think, um, I don't know. There's some kind of expressionism happening with mm. trying to change society through love still, I think. Um, and like he gets, like the point comes across and it just has all these like weird, like stuff hung onto it where you like, you know, he dances while pretending to be crazy in love for like, you know, 20 minutes and all these weird riffs happen and like they reveal like the small person who's in charge of the system, like is unhappy with him, but they don't say anything. I don't know, it's like, it's a weird interpretive piece. And yes. Yeah. yeah it know. feels really like it doesn't know what camp it wants to be in. Like the songs yeah. come across as standalones and then the, but then it's also very, very inaccessible in this like mime sort of feel. <laughs> and can I say something just about the two versions? Yeah, go for it. So the interesting thing for me is the two versions kind of push it into more into one camp or the other. So oh. the Australian version, the lead doesn't lip sync. So he is straight faced, doesn't open his mouth. He only mimes and performs. So that pushes it more into like art camp. Whereas yeah. Mike Bat, when he performs it, he lip syncs like it's a music video. So then it kind of mm. feels like it's more in the like pop goes my heart kind of, you know, if you've ever seen that movie with um, what's his face? Charming British dude. Um, anyway, <laughs> it kind of feels more like an 80s music video. And so... Yeah. For me, my introduction was like, okay, this is more of an art piece, like meant to be taken kind of like a sci-fi story. But then watching the stuff with Mike Bat, you're kind of like, okay, this is just a, it's a strange music video (laughs) for Mike (laughs) Bat's songs. Yeah. Because the songs by themselves, you could just play them on an acoustic guitar or a piano and they sound quite normal, but in the context of the arrangements, they're like quite bizarre. So, Yeah, I guess I didn't notice that. That makes a lot of sense because as in terms of like – the the traditions of what a musical is like the main character is expressing themselves through song and if hmm. the if it's actually not the main character doing that it's much more of a interpretive art piece it's okay yeah 
And that's always the way I understood this was that although it's a musical, it doesn't feel like one. It's more of a yeah performance yeah. art piece. The, Did this you is kind of talk about musicals generally. <laughs> yeah, I will. This is this is kind of what I imagine. Um, David Bowie very famously tried to buy the rights for 1984 so he could make oh. an album and a movie out of it, and George Orwell wow. ref- refused to sell it to him because he knew that Bowie was like in a weird stage and is a bit of a freak at that time. Um, <laughs> this is kind of what I imagined that would have turned out to be. Anyway, um, yeah, that's that's probably accurate. Yeah. Um, so I think. I don't know. I find the idea conceptually of musicals quite interesting um, because they evolve obviously from um, operas to like pre-war shows. Uh, I've been talking to my, uh, my sister-in-law about this, who has uh, studied musical history, Um, musical theater history, musical theater history. These shows called like uh, the Follies is there like kind of Moulin Rouge, kind of like big, you know, dance numbers and that kind of stuff. And those eventually evolve into um, musicals as high society likes them in like the early 1900s. Um, and so it you kind of have this like these multiple phases of musicals being for the upper crust because they portray like high society and the whims of those people. And then they become super popular. And then you have like, the sixties and seventies where they're a lot more like um, you get them on Broadway um, Hmm. and then you have, you know, Disney animated pictures, which are really accessible. And so they become super popular again. Um, And I, it's, I think these uh, experiments by Mike bat in the eighties are, um, I think they're like attempts to shake off some of the stuff that's happening at the time. Like these huge Broadway musicals like Les Mis and Cats and that kind of stuff, which are like wildly popular and have a very defined formula for why they're popular. And he's trying to do, he's trying to use the tools that musicals use, but use them in very strange ways. Um, Hmm. Yeah. And Though Zero Zero is like centered around a central character who is singing about himself and about his situation. So yeah. it does have a typical sort of, yeah, some typical parts to it. Yeah. And if, but I think then you marry that with the idea of like the visuals of the thing where everyone's in um, yeah. the same like black and white check costume and the world is like also just as bare. Um mm. In terms of like characteristics, only one person has any, basically. Um, yeah, it's interesting because it's a cool lens for like focusing the attention of the audience, like a yeah. cool technique. But yeah, yeah, because musicals have moved into a place now where they're contextualized um, historically. Like you have um, Hamilton, right, which is like the big mm. thing, um, and I, I don't know that much about it other than like it's very, very popular. And I saw it back in 2019 and really enjoyed it yeah and it has obviously all quite, rapping I mean, and that kind of stuff yeah and it's quite i mean i think that was very popular because of the history behind it and and the cultural time that it arrived in i think yeah so like musicals have changed from somewhat being fantastical and about you know qualities that americans appreciate um to turning into more like contextualized things. And I think it's an interesting shift where you have these, like these ones in the eighties that we're talking about, which are very much born out of, you know, the musical and cultural excess of, you know, technology for the first time. Um, yeah. These like weird productions that a, a, like one man can do that are also like mm. kind of movies in their own way. Yeah. Anyway. I, yeah. These are There's a lot to discuss around this, and you were talking with me about this last week. Um, yeah, just about, you know, musicals that do or don't kind of like work with the typical musical structure. I don't know if you yeah. want to go into it like the way Cats doesn't have, did you say it doesn't really have a, is it 
main uh, character. Yeah, it doesn't really have a protagonist as far as m- most musicals go. Um, so like the the typical the typical structure of a musical is you have the main character who sings lots of like change and desire songs, um, and a villain who sings lots of like definite songs about who they are and like why they're awesome. Um, mm. And usually those things are the things that also undo the villain in the end and the main character changes into being a better version of themselves. Um, yeah. And I think, I think it still applies to both of these that we talked about, but um, I don't know. Um, I guess is the main character in hunting of the snark, but he kind of dies. So I'm not sure. Um, yeah. You mean the, the butcher, the, the baker, I mean, the baker. Yeah. Except that like the butcher is, you know, him and the, the badger, the beaver, like, you know, form this friendship. Oh yeah. I'm, li- that's the thing. I lost track of like who was <laughs> who's, who's what who? and who met the snark. And, <laughs> and I was like, wait, did I even meet the snark? No. And then my wife's like, no, of course he didn't meet the snark. Cause then you vanish away. I'm like, oh, okay. Right. <laughs> I think I'm getting this. So anyway. Yeah. Look, um, yeah. <laughs> cool. I, yeah. Should we leave it there? <laughs> <laughs> I think we've I think we've both managed to choose musicals that are very niche and I'm proud of yeah. us. Uh let's do yeah. honorable mentions. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I will just say like I was for a long time I was not a fan of musicals because I felt like they compromised on both like the the music and the acting like while trying to merge the two but i've come to appreciate them a lot more over the years through you know my friends and family who've introduced me to them so i'm yeah i'm grateful you introduced me to hunting of the snark again and i've really enjoyed it so yeah i'm getting there (laughs) all right right, honorable mentions let's do it i have very briefly some ones written down uh i thought about doing this as a review um, but it ended up being a pretty simple album. Um, I've been listening to the latest solo record from Jeff Tweedy called Love is King. Um, oh, yeah. Jeff, Jeff Tweedy, obviously, of Wilco fame. Um, mm-hmm. He made this over the quarantine, and a lot of the backup instruments are done by his sons, um, the drums mm, and the guitars cool. especially. Um, yeah, it's a really kind of sweet uh folk Americana kind of record. It's a little bit reminiscent of um, the earliest Wilco records, which are a little more country. Um, and I don't know. Like, like it's, the whole love or which one? No, is- like, like, like early, early, like the first and second record of Wilco are okay. uh, much more country, countryified than the newer ones. Um, gotcha. And so you have these like simple songs that are like four and a half minutes long about like, you know, being married and how like that's sometimes a struggle and that kind of stuff or like how he's had a bad day like it's pretty it's pretty simple um Hmm. i've been enjoying it sweet yeah yeah Um, i like his stuff like that i and i've liked the little kind of documentaries like about the concert he does for his son's school i I like that that stuff yeah it's cute um Hmm. second um the latest record from a band called the war on drugs. Uh, Mm -hmm. So they've just put out a record called, I don't live here anymore. came out um, this week. I've given it a little listen. Um, I'm, I don't know. I'm kind of disappointed by it. The war on drugs have this reputation for being kind of like um, your uncle or your dad's like new favorite band that make kind of like a little bit old school. It's kind of like dire straits, but a little bit nouveau. And I don't know. I've enjoyed their earlier stuff. This record seems kind of blah to me, Um, Mm -hmm. but people online seem to be loving it still. So I'm not sure what to think about it, but it's been kind of meh. Um, I've never really heard them. Sorry. Yeah. I was looking forward to it. Now it's kind of, um, uh, third, um, our favorite weird band, The Idols, have put out another song. I think their album's coming out next week or in two weeks soon. Wow. That's um, so quick. Yeah. So uh, I really don't know what this album is going to be. Um, so they put out their first song, The Beachland Ballroom, 
which is like a weird, like three, four kind of soul waltz. That's very angry. And then they put out a mm. new song. Um, I think it's called car crash and it's, uh, kind of like a rap song. Like it's kind of like, okay. um, there's a band called the death grips. It's kind of like them. It's this weird, distorted, aggressive, like hip hop beat with Joe Talbot, just like yelling stuff over it. And it builds to this like weird, angry climax. And then there's a kind of a nice part to finish it off. It's just, it's very different. And okay. um, this is kind of what I expected to happen from another musician called Slow Tie, who's a friend of the Idols, who's an actual rapper. I was wondering if he was going to go in this like weird punk kind of uh, angry rap uh, area, but it seems like the Idols are going there. So I'm not sure what's going to happen with this record. It's very okay. interesting either way. Um, yeah. And then lastly, I've been listening to a lot of The Roots uh so the Roots are a uh, Philadelphia um, hip hop outfit that are pretty legendary, and I might review one of their albums next time. I'm going through them, um, mm. but I've been watching their NPR Tiny Desk performance, and yeah, it's so it's, good. It's pretty masterful. So there's there's two parts <laughs> to it, and the first is like a two minute kind of groove where the drummer Questlove and their horn section comes out into this kind of like kind of funky groove bit. And there's a guy on the sousaphone who oh is just carrying this bass line. And it's, it's so difficult as somebody who played a brass instrument for a number of years, what he's doing is very hard. Um, especially and, on a and sousaphone. And it's like constant. Like yeah, yeah. I was saying to you that like, you know, I struggle with like tower of power, sort of like 16th funk stuff. I mean, this wasn't, as constant as that, but it was so repetitive and quick and like yeah. he was just nailing it. He was the only one playing for like <laughs> ages while this guy's talking over the top and then they start grooving along and it's like... Yeah, I love it. Oh, man. And then they um, they yeah. transition into a, a, an actual song that they recorded with a, another artist called Bilal or Bilal. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, um, uh, which is a really interesting, I think they did it for a film and then they kind of redo this version for the NPR. Um, mm. and they just nail it. I mean, these guys are consummate professionals and, uh, the switch ups between the like singing part that the guest does and the, uh, the rap verses that the uh, main uh, MC black thought, um, puts together. They're like, there's a tempo change that goes between them and they hit it every single time. The whole thing is mm. just seamless. Yeah. It's really well done. So, um, I've been really impressed with the roots lately and we'll listen to more of them in the future. Probably. Nice. Those are my honorable mentions. Yeah. Sweet. I've just got a couple, a uh, couple of small ones. Um, new churches tracks Ooh. on the deluxe version of screen violence. Um, they didn't add a huge amount to the album in terms of like songs I love from that album, but I think there was one that I really enjoyed out of the three. It's just, yeah, it's cool. I think I'm kind of a bit done with synth pop stuff at the moment. So <laughs> I was like, I feel like I'd synth popped myself out and more tracks came. I'm like, oh, cool. I'll listen to them. I'm like, all right, I, I think I'm still done. <laughs> but um, it was nice to listen to as well anyway. Um, a new artist I found, John Guerrera, um, Christian singer, songwriter from the U S, um, has a song called citizens that I really like though. The album is very diverse. Um, he kind of reminds me, but he, I feel like he's been listening to a lot of sun Lux. Um, you can uh. kind of hear it in his vocal tone and production and stuff. So I'll chuckle some, chuck, chuckle some songs on the playlist. He, <laughs> 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 um, now, I've been listening to a lot of music by the artist Simon Stalenhag. So Simon Stalenhag is a graphic artist famous for his his self-proclaimed kitchen sink sci-fi books, um, yeah. of which I'm a big fan. Um, they're so, I have they're all of so his books. good. They're so oh good. Oh, my goodness. I reread all of them recently. Um, <laughs> and so I... His his latest book came out about a year ago, The Labyrinth, and I've I 
obviously read them all before and then I just sat down and read all four of them. Mm. And this time I listened to his music while I was reading them. Um, so he's released three albums, now four. He just released one last Friday. Um, and they're all instrumental albums made on old like Pentiums. Um, I'm not sure if the, the new album, The Labyrinth, is made the same way, but he's kind of like his first album was like music for DOS. And so it's got this really <laughs> 1990s music feel, which matches perfectly with his the universe in which he's writing, which at least the first two books, Tales from the Loop and Things from the Flood, are set in an alternate universe 1990s with like Gravitron flying trucks and stuff um, and strange creatures and uh, particle accelerators, etc. And then there's The Electric State, and then he's just released this album for um, the, the Labyrinth. So I'm going to chuck some songs on the playlist. Have you actually listened to his music? Or uh, I have not, actually. I think you'll like it. It's very, it's very cold. It feels like it, it matches. <laughs> yeah, it matches his, his art so well. Mm. And as some people have said on like his band camp, like he's just such a complete artist. Like his stuff has been made into Amazon Prime series. I, I watched a bit. I think I mentioned this a while ago and didn't dig it as much as the books. Yeah. But um, he's just, he's very good at all of the different parts. Like he's done music videos or like done art for music videos. He's written these books with beautiful drawings and then fascinating <laughs> stories. And then he's written the music to go with it. So Yeah. yeah. So it's not worth pushing over. He, he has a, a thing called Tales from the Loop, which was made into a TV show. Um, hmm. is, is also a uh, tabletop role-playing game that you can play. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like uh, what Stranger Things wishes it could be, I think. But um, <laughs> just, just a jab at them. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the art of... Simon Stadenhag is um, something else, I think. It really, mm. um, I don't know, at least to me, and I think you as well, attaches to that like piece of your brain where you kind of look at the modern world and technology and like despair a little bit. And then he mm. brings in these little touches of humanity um, that kind of stop you from going over the edge a little bit that like oh things aren't that bad um yeah it's a really interesting combination so i'm i'll i'm excited to hear what he sounds like makes music yeah interestingly on that the thing that makes him special is that he doesn't he's not grandiose in his storytelling so tales from the loop is literally him pretending to be a kid in the 90s growing up in sweden although he is swedish and he grew up there but obviously not in this alternate reality and so it's stories about his childhood with the fantastic sprinkled in subtly. So mm-hmm. it's not like a reporter being like, this crazy thing happened. It's just like a kid <laughs> whose normal life is living amongst the fantastic and the dystopian and the all that. They The books get darker, to be warned to the readers. Um, and something I, would, I do want to take a stab at something right now. We all know that NFTs died a horrible <laughs> death. Um, However, it still is remarkable to me that people tried to get Simon Stalin hug to do NFTs when his whole shtick is like climate collapse, guys. Like, you know, his whole latest book is like the world is a wasteland because of, I mean, because of a, a fantastic influence that polluted the world. But also I think the, the metaphor there is also us killing our own planet. And yeah. somehow people thought that it would be a cool idea to like get him to try and do NFTs. And it's people, like, he's like, people st- I will block you so hard. Yeah. People still bug him about it on Twitter every so often. And I'll just yeah. be scrolling and I see Stalin Stalin. I'm just like ripping a dude a new one about NFTs. I'm like, okay, yeah. this is still happening. And then also with the latest, you know, metaverse, he reposted some images from Electric State, which is about VR taking over people's entire lives. It's just... He seems to be on the cultural edge constantly and people think that somehow, like, he's pro these things. That's just, have you read him? Anyway, I'll stop my rant. I'll stop having a go at them. (laughs) I just thought I'd throw that in there because, you know, because I think he's a really, he's a good, he's an artist with integrity. So anyway, Mm. 
Um, my last one is also sci-fi themed. Jim Guthrie has a new song for a um, a game, which uh, is called Jet, and he it's this beautiful um, what I kind of call ambient space folk. It I said to you, it kind of feels like what Bowie could have written, um, yeah. but it didn't have the weird chord changes. Um, but it's a beautiful song. I think it's all instrumental, and it's just this lovely great song uh, i don't know i don't know how to describe it. i'm just going to chuckle on the playlist and let you enjoy so <laughs> yeah thank you for listening to episode 37 uh we are nearing the end of our 30s time to get very responsible um please check us out on socials uh instagram and twitter uh, facebook is falling by the wayside um uh, i should really get to it sunday But you know what? Just check us out on all the other places you can listen to us. Um, Leave us reviews on, um, you know, Apple Podcasts if you feel like doing so. Send us music. We get sent music from time to time. That's really lovely. And it also just helps us to kind of find things outside of our sphere of listening. And I really appreciate that personally. I'm sure Josh does too. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, we look forward to chatting about some new good tunes next time. And we'll see you later. See you, Josh. See you, mate. Bye.